Welcome to Shaping Sustainable Supply Chains, a podcast where we discuss supply chains worldwide and provide solutions on how to make them more sustainable. Today, we will focus on supply chains, disruptions and African-European relations. My name is Nicholas Martin. Thank you for listening. The COVID-19 pandemic has uncovered the weakness of global supply chains. It also put a heavy spotlight on the international dependence on China. The sudden halt in supply in the People's Republic in the early days of the pandemic has caused trouble for many industries. Some products, especially in the medical sectors, were scarce like ventilators or masks. The prices of many others increased heavily. Some governments were shocked by these developments, though they asked and even gave incentives to bring production home. That's the Western version of the pandemic's effects on supply chains. But what about the African view on the developments? Today, we can discuss that with Bernice McLean. She's a supervisor of the Industrialization Division at NEPAD, the development agency of the African Union. She's talking to us from the city of Johannesburg in South Africa. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And joining the discussion from Berlin is Dr. Melanie Müller. She's a senior associate with a focus on Southern Africa and head of a research project on transnational approaches for sustainable commodity supply chains at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Bernice, you have been working in the area of development and industrialization for more than 20 years in different agencies, such as the World Bank as well. Now you're working at NEPAD, the development agency of the African Union. NEPAD is trying to push projects on industrialization, economic integration, environmental sustainability, and other areas for the member states of the African Union. When you experienced this massive first shock of the pandemic on trade and supply chains, did you fear that this could rapidly undo years of the organization's work? Yeah, the impact on trade and supply chain so far has been very, very heavy. Um, so some of these these impacts obviously included the the shutdowns of um, travel, of movement of of um, people and goods, to try to to mitigate some of the the spread of the pandemic, and this has really had a, a vast impact uh, not only on the on the formal supply chains, but uh, sometimes more significantly on the informal supply chains, um, which has had more of an impact on our populations who have uh, are slightly more vulnerable than than some of the others. In the aftermath of the pandemic, one of the terms that was circulating was reshoring or nearshoring, a term that describes a process within supply chains. Let's have a listen. In the early days of the pandemic, many countries started calling for manufacturing to be brought back home. These countries were triggered by supply chain bottlenecks and shortages of medical equipment. Nearshoring describes the relocation of production to nearby countries. Reshoring goes even further. Reshoring seeks to reverse the globalization of supply chains altogether, bringing the entire manufacturing chain back to the domestic market. Both concepts aim at making supply chains more resilient and able to withstand regional and global shocks. And they aim to reduce dependency on foreign markets and countries, such as China. 
Bernice, some governments actually even promised incentives to shift the production back home. Could you tell us more about the debate of reshoring and nearshoring within the African Union? I think within within Africa specifically, I think the the awareness of of our uh, dependence uh, on external supply chains and the the impact of the interruptions of those supply chains has really stimulated uh, more thinking around uh, reshoring and nearshoring. I think this this conversation has been going on and and would have been going on anyway with the um, uh, intended operationalization of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, where we recognize the need to build local markets, regional markets, and to supply those markets uh, to, to increase our resilience as a continent and specifically increase the resilience of, of um, certain countries that really do rely heavily on, on external goods um, to operate. And I think the, the, the main idea or the main thoughts um, at this stage are, are really for Africa to try and diversify rather than either relying on, you know, purely on globalization and on global markets or purely on nearshoring or reshoring, um, but rather to, to have a combination that is appropriate for the continent and for the countries um, and the regional corridors specifically. Um, and to diversify its offerings, its markets, and its trade links. So let's bring in the European perspective. Melanie, you are specialized on the African continent, but you're also observing the political reactions to the pandemic from the middle of Europe in Berlin. Where do you see that discussion of nearshoring and reshoring in Europe going right now? I can observe a debate which is focusing on four different aspects. First of all, it's the possibility of multi-sourcing, which means to obtain resources from different sources or different regions. Um, then diversification of supply chains. Um, that's what Bernice just mentioned. Also, um, the potential re-regionalization of the economy, uh, a debate that is happening in the European Union at the moment, and also the relocation of strategic production. And I think it's important to understand that there are geopolitics behind it. I mean, there's the trade conflict between China and the US uh, and also for the European Union um, Brexit and the negotiations between the EU and the UK, you know, also um, play into that debate. So I would also say that we would have had this debate anyway, but uh, the pandemic has enforced it. You just mentioned the political debate, but when you look at the industries, um, I mean, there is a lot of rhetorics about reshoring and nearshoring, but do you see that reshoring is already happening in Europe? Where we see it is in India or in Japan at the moment. These are countries which are trying to create incentives for companies that um, produced in China. And so the relocation of their industries, like creating incentives for their industries to relocate, that's the, that's the proper description, uh, could reduce the strong dependence on China in, in the Asian context. I mean, I would say in Europe, we could not observe such developments to a very large extent, but the debate is there. And that means, you know, it remains to be seen what is going to happen in the next years. There's one example I would like to point out, and it's um, the example of the health sector. 
France um, has an action plan for reshoring research projects and manufacturing sites for health products uh, in France and Europe. And so the idea is to support the European health production in general, um, because the majority of the pharmaceutical products consumed in Europe were produced in Asia. So this is one area where, where we see it happen already. Um, and I mean, with the pandemic, um, you know, still ongoing, I think it, it makes sense to talk about the strategic relocation of, uh, of these industries. If you look at Europe again and the debate on reshoring and nearshoring, do you think a strategy of reshoring is actually possible and realistic for the European Union? I think for Europe, it's it's not really realistic. I mean, we can talk about um, relocating certain sectors um, in order to become more resilient um, and you know have have um, industries uh, bringing industries closer to home, so to say, so that we're not that dependent on disruptions in other regions. Um, but at the same time, if you look at the European Union and at certain sectors, we simply can't relocate. I'll give you one example. Germany as an export-oriented economy is highly dependent on the import of minerals and metals. And the demand uh, for raw materials such as copper or platinum, for example, will increase in the next years. Um, because of uh, the digitalization strategies uh, and the energy transition that is ongoing already. So that means we need more minerals and metals. Most of them are sourced in countries of the so-called global south. I mean, South Africa, for example, is one of the biggest exporters of platinum. We simply don't have that uh, in Europe. Um, and that means um, in those areas, we won't be able to reshore or nearshore. So we have to import metals. And um, that's why I think, you know, we also have to have this debate about sectors and dependencies in certain sectors, not only talking about regions. We do observe that a similar idea to reshoring and nearshoring is also becoming stronger among African politicians. And the pandemic has made this school of thought with the name Building Back better, more relevant than ever before. Let's have a listen. Building back better means increasing the resilience of communities against disasters and shocks. It does so by strengthening local infrastructure and capacity. It was first introduced in 2004 following the Indian Ocean tsunami. The idea is that the period following a natural disaster presents a unique window of opportunity to introduce resilience and to eliminate the root causes of vulnerability within a community. The concept has gained significant traction in recent years, particularly in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Which policy measures actually fall under the term building back better is still up for debate and highly context-specific. Bernice, highly context-specific. The African Union has often referred to the concept of building back better. What does this mean in an African context? The African context of building back better can be seen through, through the impacts that we've observed from the pandemic. I mean, obviously, the conversation has started previous to this pandemic, where we realize that uh, certain sectors of the population are not are not supported to the extent of, of being able to to contribute meaningfully in a in a sustainable and equitable way to to the economies, um, and are facing greater challenges to. Uh, livelihoods and so on. So that awareness um, has, as I said before, has really been exacerbated by viewing the, the impacts of the um, of the pandemic um, and the shutdowns and, and interrupted supply chains and so on. 
So the Building Back Better really focuses on a more um, sustainable and more equitable approach to development on the continent, um, whereby our policies are responding to the needs uh, that are felt by not only big business, um, obviously very important, but also responds to uh, informal markets, uh, informal traders, uh, lower income uh, actors. And I'll I'll speak primarily from the the perspective of industrialization here. Uh, You know, we have many, many uh, lessons and best practices coming uh, from other areas of of the world and from decades past in industrialization. Uh, But those are not necessarily appropriate for Africa in the current context, um, in the current really diverse and dynamic context of the different African countries. Um, Not uh, all countries are are at the same economic uh, level. We have a lot of uh, inequity and uh, gaps in our our economic development. So we need to look at um, building back better in terms of uh, looking at alternative opportunities that may be offered um, through uh, pathways for industrialization, like you know digitalization or the fourth industrial revolution, and to see how we can best participate in these upcoming pathways uh, that are appropriate for specific African contexts um, and really respond to the needs and the comparative advantages that uh, we have on the continent. Melanie, now that you hear that perspective, what do you think the EU could and also maybe should do to support the African Union to build back better? Well, I think the European Union has to carefully observe the debates and discussions that are going on in the African Union at the moment. Um, And I very often observe uh, like a mismatch of perceptions, so to say, Um, because like Bernice said, in many countries, Job creation, you know, is at the center of the concerns, uh, and I think COVID nineteen, you know, and and um, the effects that it will have has uh, or will accelerate these demands because um, many African countries uh, are in the middle of a debt crisis and many people lost their jobs. Some countries were not able to create financial stimulus packages during the pandemic. So I think. Um, it's very likely, and we see it already happening, that social inequality will increase. We see that, you know, in a global level. We even observed that in Europe. But I think for some African countries, the situation is much more dramatic. So I think even though there are, like, good concepts for European-African cooperation that are being developed between the EU and the AU, um, I think it is very important to keep in mind that everything um, that we develop has to take into account these necessities on the African continent and the demands that are there. And I do think that we have to observe these developments, not only at the AU level, but really on a, on a local level, like, you know, looking at developments in certain countries and maybe also certain regions. And I think there's still homework to do for European decision makers, but because we in Europe tend to look at the African continent as, you know, one continent. And we very often neglect the differences within regions and also between countries. Bernice, looking at the needs once again, um, one of the current uh, need is obviously the access to vaccines. And uh, The Economist recently reported that many African countries might not be able to access COVID-19 vaccines before spring 2022. In Europe and and the US, the majority of the people might then have already received the vaccine. Given this scenario of this very unequal distribution, 
is the EU still perceived as a reliable partner in the African Union? You know, as you said, um, there's been an, an unequal distribution. Um, a lot of the high-income countries have sourced uh, or secured uh, more doses than than have been required. Um, you know, some countries have secured more than than three doses per capita. Uh, while you know, many countries in Africa have have only managed to secure less than one dose per capita. Um, so I think we we are viewing the, the global context of vaccine demand and supply um, with trepidation. We view this this as a, a global challenge that's faced by everybody that should be, actually be um, addressed globally uh, in an equitable way. So I think whatever um, support and whatever assistance can be provided by partners such as Europe, uh, US, UK will obviously be welcome. I think we need to look at this as a as a cooperative approach um, to to dealing with this pandemic. You can't go about it on a, on an individual basis. Um, it needs to have a, a global solution to it. Melanie, what do you think? Is the EU sidelining itself with this very Eurocentric approach? On the other hand, we have China was one of the first players to actually deliver protective equipment to Africa. Now they're also delivering vaccines. Do you think the EU is sidelining itself? Well, I think um, at least we can say that the EU is very much uh, concerned uh, with itself and it also has a lot to deal with itself at the moment. I think the question for me is now if Europe will be able to also look at the bigger picture, like Bernie said, uh, not only focusing on individual country strategies or like a regional strategy, but rather to think of what does it mean for the global economy and globalization and global trade relations if we produce like inequitable access to vaccines and thus maybe exclude certain regions um, from from access to, to vaccinations. That, of course, is, is um, that's very important to look at the bigger picture. I mean, I would say there is there was also a competition almost going on between and, and it is always happening um, between China, the US, uh, Europe, with regard to the question who is a reliable partner to African countries and, and to African economies. So I think uh, if Europe wants to be an attractive partner, it also has to deliver and it also has to acknowledge that it needs to support different regions and also the African Union. I wouldn't say that Europe is necessarily sidelining itself. And I think one has to be fair uh, and acknowledge that a lot has happened on a bilateral level. Also, the European Union has supported the African Union also with regard to the implementation of the African Free Continental Trade Area. So I think there is a lot going on. I just think it's sometimes not as visible as it could be, um, also when you compare it to China's mask diplomacy. In Europe, there is, uh, going back to the topic of supply chains, there is a debate going on on supply chains laws. Um, this means that companies could be held responsible if they do not comply with human rights in their supply chains. Let's have a listen. In April of 2020, the EU Justice Commissioner announced the European Union's will to work towards a mandatory system requiring companies to adhere to human rights due diligence and environmental standards along their supply chains. The initiative was lauded by large parts of Parliament, civil society and business associations. Still, there are many critical questions that remain unanswered. How will the law be enforced? Which companies will be affected? 
and who will be made responsible in the event of human rights violations or environmental damage. Germany just announced to pass such a law this summer. It could then be applied in 2023. How do you observe the European discussion, Bernice, on making supply chains more responsible with respect to human and environmental rights? It's a critical issue. I think this is a, a positive step forward. Um, from the perspective of um, Africa, you know, a significant part of um, our Agenda 2063 uh, is linked to human rights standards. And specific parts of it are explicitly grounded in uh, specific human rights treaties um, and thereby linked to, to human rights mechanisms that supervise the implementation of those treaties. Um, it also emphasizes to a large degree environmental protection. So, so we're completely aligned with, with it. Uh, as, as mentioned before, you know, the African Union sees diverse sourcing and digitization as, as key to building back stronger and smarter, uh, more resilient and equitable supply chains. And I think the, the human and environmental rights protections are, are a key part um, of this um, to ensure lasting uh, recovery and, and building back better. Melanie, in this podcast, we focus on sustainable supply chains. One of the self-proclaimed goals of European cooperation with Africa is sustainability. Where do you see potential areas for cooperation and challenges in this matter? I think it would be a very strong signal if European companies would be held accountable for the violation of social and environmental rights across the entire production chain. And I think it's very important to include the perspective of other regions um, and also, you know, good to hear that, you know, this is important um, for the African Union as well and aligned with African priorities. So that's one important aspect. I think there is one key question, even on the European level, but also with regard to um, trading partners. At the end, implementation is key. I mean, we can have many great concepts, but companies, you know, need to be able to do their, um, like, human rights impact assessments, for example. But also in certain countries and, like, certain trading partners, they need to be able to implement higher standards. Some might be, others are not. So for me, the question is how to capacitate those or help help countries to improve their social and environmental performance. Because if that doesn't happen, then it would mean that they might be excluded from certain supply chains because they're not attractive trading partners. So I think this will open up a whole new area um, also for development cooperation in order to capacitate countries, but also certain industry to be able to meet these standards. If we look at supply chains once again and making them more resilient, Bernice, where do you see common interests of the European and the African unions? I think there are many, many opportunities. I think the, the free trade area also provides opportunity for looking at the issues of standards. And I think I absolutely agree there that increasing capacity and resources to our, our national standards authorities, as well as the um, the bodies and the, the processes that are, are trying to loosen up uh, regional um, trade, I think is, is a really critical area that needs some, some further assistance and is a, is a critical area for collaboration. You know, on, on, in Africa, we have an organization that is dealing primarily with, with standards and harmonization and so on, this African Organization for Standardization. And they're working very hard to try to facilitate the operationalization of the free trade area 
in terms of uh, regional supply chains. So I think, you know, working with the, the national authorities and the regional economic communities to, to achieve that. Um, so I think these are these are critical areas where we can collaborate further on. And uh, as I said, we just we just need to articulate clearly what we need and where we see potentials for investments, not only through you know development funding, but uh, specific investments into our industries and not only the large industries, but but across the, the broad spectrum. Melanie Bernice just mentioned the African Continental Free Trade Area (AFCFTA) which started this year after it was first postponed due to the pandemic. From the European perspective, on looking at supply chains, making them more resilient, is the AFCFTA a chance? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think it is. And um, I also observed that many European decision makers observed the implementation of the AFCFTA with interest. Um, to be honest, I think it might be too early Not sure if Bernice would agree, but I think it might be too early to uh, talk about uh, the chances for Europe, uh, because I think there's still a lot going on on the African continent with regard to the implementation of the AFCFTA. But I see a lot of potential. And like we said, um, it's uh, also the question of, for example, social and environmental standards in both regions and how this can be aligned, but also looking at different sectors, how it could facilitate trade between the regions. I think there are many opportunities and I think it would, of course, be easier to have like two regional trade areas um, like the European Union and the African Union that could then negoti negotiate this on a regional level rather than on the country to country level. So I see various opportunities, but we also might have to wait a little until, you know, this development um, also unfolds a little more. What do you think, Bernice? Yeah, you know, I think from from the perspective of um, having to wait a while, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think there are a number of initiatives that are underway that are contributing to um, to building local markets, uh, looking at regional trade corridors. Um, you know, many examples uh, coming from Europe, uh, many many lessons coming from the EU that we can learn from. Um, and see how to apply to Africa or, or see what we can take from those lessons um, in Africa. And I think that's, that's underway already. There are projects that, that the EU is supporting, um, I know in specific sectors, uh, for example, fisheries and aquaculture, that I think you know, really uh, are addressing some of the key issues in terms of not only governance of our resources in Africa, uh, you know, improved governance of our natural resources and in, in improved utilization of, on a sustainable basis, uh, but also the trade aspects. So, you know, I think, I think we, we just need to be aware of, of looking at the existing activities with a, with a certain lens to see how we can best contribute to the, to the operationalization of, of the AFCFTA. Thank you so much for giving us these insights, supply chain disruptions and African-European relations. That was our topic today. With me from South Africa was Bernice McLean, Supervisor of the Industrialization Division at NEPAT, the development agency of the African Union. Thank you for your time. And Dr. Melanie Müller from the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Thank you for joining us. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Research Network Sustainable Global Supply Chains, which brings together up to 70 leading researchers from around the globe and is hosted by four German institutes. In the next episode, we will have a deeper look at inter-African supply chains in the agricultural sector. I'm Nicholas Martin. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned and stay safe. Yeah.